Warning, binge mode contains adult content. We get our first, as far as I know, direct mention of genitalia in these chapters of Harry Potter about the airiness required to keep them cool sometimes. Even wizards need to keep them cool. So if that kind of discussion is not what you're looking for, why don't you check out The Watch with our friends Chris and Andy. Always keeping it cool. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. So if you don't yet know what Jason was talking about and why Archie feels compelled to share that he likes a healthy breeze around his privates, thanks. Please proceed with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. Look, can someone just explain what that skull thing was? Said Ron impatiently. It wasn't hurting anyone. Why is it such a big deal? I told you, it's you-know-who symbol, Ron, said Hermione before anyone else could answer. I read about it in The Rise and Fall of the Dark Arts. And it hasn't been seen for 13 years, said Mr. Weasley quietly. Of course, people panicked. It's almost like seeing you-know-who back again. I don't get it, said Ron, frowning. I mean, it's still only a shape in the sky. Ron, you-know-who and his followers sent the dark mark into the air whenever they killed, said Mr. Weasley. The terror it inspired... You have no idea. You're too young. Just picture coming home and finding the dark mark hovering over your house and knowing what you're about to find inside. Mr. Weasley winced. Everyone's worst fear. The very worst. Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. Woo! I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website! Joining me today, now that he's finished perfecting his version of the Ronsky defensive feint. That's right. It's Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal! Yeah? Tell me time for dangerous secret diversions later. But now it's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe, whether you wrote for... Ireland or Bulgaria, or you're still lamenting England's shocking (laughs) 390 to 10 loss to Transylvania. It is not coming home. Pathetic. Please please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So please rate and review us. Five points, five stars for Binge Mode. Yes. Please feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is only for Binge Mode fans, which is an excellent place to shop for World Cup merch if you missed the chance to buy a mini flying firebolt in person. I wish I had one of those. Get one of those little mini crumb figurines. Yesterday, on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how clashing worlds shape the opening five chapters, Goblet of Fire. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapter 6 through 10 of Goblet. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep. Just like Archie. Fucking sweaty balls, Archie. (laughs) On details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon. (laughs) Wide Archie canon. (laughs) (laughs) Taking the entire series into account from the moment we reach Stoatshead Hill. So put a finger on this porky before it departs, because it's time to head to the Quidditch World Cup. Yeah. Jason? Yes. 
The terror binge mode inspired. You have no idea. You're too young. It's true. And that gets us right into this episode's big idea. Lots to get through today. No Hogwarts Express. Yes. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapter 6 through 10 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is light and dark. Yes. Chapter 6, the port key. You guys down with the swirl? The duality of light and dark is one of the characteristics of the first three books of this series. Magic is joyful. We got friendship. We got flying brooms and mischief making fun. But there is also danger growing ever closer. Now, that duality is increasingly becoming interplay as moments of darkness are invading the light. And what lightness and delightful lightness we have in this chapter, Harry, back at the borough, surrounded by the people who have come to become his family. The scene is delightful in its domesticity. Milf Weasley (laughs) cooking up a storm, cooking up that breakfast as Mr. Weasley is counting out the tickets for the World Cup. Arthur, again, Ostensibly, an expert on muggle culture is like, hey, uh, what do you think about my dress? Unbelievable. Am I looking okay? And Harry's like, I don't know. Whatever. (laughs) Fred and George are whining about not being able to apparate, prompting Arthur to launch into a screed about the difficulty and danger of that particular mode of transportation. You need a license, like driving when you apparate. Molly then catches Fred and George carrying a bunch of their jinxed toffees that so ruin the Dursley's evening and Dudley's face. There's a genuinely tense and glum moment with the twins departing without saying farewell to their mother, described thusly. It was an unpleasant scene. And then, all in all, the atmosphere was not very friendly as they took their departure. Even in these less dangerous moments, the borough is chaotic, messy, and loud, but that's what makes it special. Yes. It's truly a home, and in addition to Hogwarts, the only one Harry has ever known. Love the borough. Love the borough. Great. Of all the places you could go in the magical world, how high would the borough rank is somewhere you'd just like to be able to I'd hang like for to a see minute. the borough. I'd like to see the borough. I'd like to see before you. or after they exploded in the Half Blood Prince movie oh, man, for no that was reason. A fucking tough look. <laughs> sure, let's destroy the borough for no reason. <laughs> Whatever. Why? Oh boy. Sitting out for the porky. Borough still intact. Thank God. <laughs> Harry, and by proxy, us, the readers, learn about the logistical issues involved with planning a event of this scale, a sports tournament attended by wizards and witches from around the world. We've met ministry officials before. You know, we've had time with Corny Fudge himself, among Love. other people. Corn we've Fudge. Heard... <laughs> Love my God. Why? It makes me laugh so much. Love my God, Corn Fudge. <laughs> We've heard about several departments within the wizarding government. We've seen the ministry attempt to take some sort of action, you know, puncturing Aunt Marge, for example. Attempt. Fumbling about with the whole serious manhunt. Yeah. Misplacing dementors at a school with children. Good work. Things of that nature. But we haven't, until this, really seen the government properly, fully in action. Managing logistics, infrastructure. This is a chance for us to see how this world works. And listen, guys, not sure if you know this about us. That's right. We're nerds. It's true. We love this shit. This is genuinely fascinating. This is world building, guys. It is. It's great. These chapters are great. To aid with international travel, we learn, the ministry has placed 200 port keys at, quote, strategic points around Britain with staggered arrivals so that they can fend off detection. You can't just have 100,000 people popping in at once. Right. Walking to it like an alley, a random alley (laughs) in Exeter to touch an old soup can or something. (laughs) More on port keys in today's restricted section. The ministry, we learn, had to find a deserted moor for 
the event and had to set up as many anti-muggle precautions as possible. Even in the excited buildup to the event, notably, it's clear how tenuous all of this is. How much could go wrong with just one misstep? Our party arrives at Stoat's Head Hill, the site of their port key, and they meet up with said Diggory and his dad, Amos, who found the moldy boot that is to be their transport. Daddy Dig works for the ministry as well in the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures. Introductions take place. We're reminded, once again, Cedric is a babe. Handsome. You keep hearing it. Cedric, who is insanely handsome. A key thing to know heading into an angsty year of raging hormones and Yule Balls. Yes. Then Amos, like practically everyone else in the Wizarding World who meets Harry for the first time, has that wow moment. That very quickly gives way to pride in his boy regarding his victory in last year's crucial Hufflepuff-Gryffindor matchup. Said that'll be something to tell your grandchildren that, will you beat Harry Potter. The details, as we all know, are slightly more complicated. Harry and Cedric, who is a fine flyer in his own right, were in a duel for the snitch high above the stadium in the pouring rain when the Dementors swarmed in, searching for Sirius, causing Harry to black out. Said, who's described as looking slightly embarrassed, has enough humility to acknowledge this. Harry fell off his broom, Dad, I told you. It was an accident. Amos continues to be carried away with pride in his son's victory in a way that is both touching. This is his son. Yeah. And kind of annoying. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but you didn't fall off, did you? Roda Amos genially slapping his son on his back. Always modest, I said. Always the gentleman, but the best man won. I'm sure Harry'd say the same, wouldn't you, eh? One falls off his broom, one stays on. You don't need to be a genius to tell which one's the better flyer. <laughs> this should be a moment of unity. Local wizards heading off together for the crowning event in their signature sport. But even this well-intentioned fatherly boast brings... Some divisions. Mercifully, before things get even more awkward, it's time to touch the port key, feel the telltale pull behind the navel for the first time, and be off. All in all, these scenes widen the scope of wizarding culture. That is the light within which the darkness, like a cancer, is growing. Chapter 7. Bagman and Crouch. What a delight this chapter is. So much to take in. By now, we're well accustomed to the theme of magic hiding in plain sight. And it is... Very amusing to see all of these witches and wizards manage that or attempt to manage it on an individual level. The Muggle campsite proprietor, Mr. Roberts, notes how many, quote, weirdos there are. People who are struggling with money. Quote, a bloke walking around in a kilt and a poncho. Great reply from Mr. Weasley here. Shouldn't he? (laughs) Arthur knows Jack. This guy is unbelievable. I love that. You can really feel the panic when he says I wonder that. Why the, I wonder why the ministry is not run well. Arthur probably one of the most competent guys around. And he's just like, what? <laughs> Kilt and poncho? Not normal? Is that not good? Honestly, that seems like something you would see up there. You might. I mean, it seems like this is like a music festival almost. So you'd yeah. like, I think next time the ministry should pretend it's a music festival. <laughs> You have magical people attempting to make their campsites look like normal muggle sites, but they can't help ultimately being who they are or, as Mr. Weasley notes, showing off for each other when they get together. And that, of course, is not specific to magical people. That's just a very human instinct. I'm going to outdo you. Here's how. There are weather vanes, chimneys on top of their tents. There are tents that are multiple stories tall. Sure. A pen full of peacocks. That's one of the best ones. (laughs) The kid, dear sweet young Kevin, 
making a slug swell to enormous size. And who knows what's, what else? We only get to see what Harry sees. Yes. Arthur insists on raising their own tents the muggle way. But uh, Harry that Hermione, means. we hope you've stretched because he has no idea what yeah. he's doing. Quote, Mr. Weasley was more of a hindrance than a help because he got thoroughly overexcited when it came to using the mallet. I can't, I want to, <laughs> I just have no idea what this means. But I just picture him like wildly, yeah! <laughs> it's like, oh man. But even these tents, seemingly plain from the outside are magically expanded mm. within. The boys' tent, resembling a three-bedroom flat complete with bathroom and kitchen. All of this is just so charming and thrilling to read about and see. Mm -hmm. Such light. And even here amid this awe and splendor, there's a hint of darkness. It's worth remembering how it is that the wizarding world hides this event by turning the memory of Mr. Roberts and his family into Swiss cheese. Roberts in particular has to be obliviated 10 times a day to stop him asking questions about who these weirdos are and why they're here and where they're coming from, the unusual number of pre-bookings, et cetera. Who knows how many times his recollections have been altered at all? Like, honestly, who knows? Hundreds? Dozens? We don't know. What effect does this have on him? We'll get a hint of the impact of these myriad obliviations after the attack by the Death Eaters. It's interesting because it's sort of positioned as like that attack and the strength of the memory charm they needed to use to make the family forget the torture is what did it. But we don't know uh, what so we state don't know. they would have been in before that. This is a lot of obliviating. And let's face and it. And this guy didn't ask for this. He did not ask for it. And let's face He's it. He's just running a business. Something tells me the ministry is not going to be like, should we check up on Mr. Roberts now two weeks after the event to see if he Correct. is like wandering around, like slobbering in the streets? My guess is they just all move on. And people are like, why is Mr. Roberts all of a sudden suddenly f- wearing ponchos and kilts f- every day? Why is that whole family suddenly a fucking mess? No one, literally no one knows. It'll just be like, wow, remember when Mr. Roberts all of a sudden that whole family just went wild crazy all it's, of a sudden? It's genuinely very upsetting. Yeah, it's upsetting. About. Back to the light because <laughs> that's to our the theme light. today. <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Roberts. <laughs> you shit out of luck. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> Marching through the camp, populated by wizards and witches from all around the world, Harry is filled with wonder. Quote, it was only just dawning on Harry how many witches and wizards there must be in the world. He had never really thought much about those in other countries. Now, this is sort of weird because, you know, on the one hand, Harry, upon finding out that he's a magical being and gets to go to a magical school and live in a magical world with a magical government, never wondered how many other people there are like him. How many other places in the world are populated by these people? Never thought to ask. But it's also totally natural and normal. And one of our best reminders yet, because it's easy to forget this when Harry is achieving everything he is, that despite his atypical precociousness and the burdens that he bears, Harry is a kid. Mm -hmm. Harry is a teenager. With all the standard myopia that can sometimes entail when it comes to thinking about or not thinking about the ways of the world. And so we get to join Harry on this journey of discovery as he sees the full flower of wizarding culture, free for now yes, from worries about you-know-who or dark wizards. He walks about, listens to different languages, and he can tell, and this is really cool, he can tell that the excitement is there in every voice, even if he can't tell what they're saying. Everyone at the Quidditch World Cup is here to have a great time, to gather together as one. Or so it seems. That's right. They enter the Ireland encampment and meet Seamus's mom. Who's voice work, voice work. Hey, mother. <laughs> <laughs> hey, mother. 
The Bulgarian section is papered with Crumb's face. Every scene is a new experience and delight. At the water tap, they witness a heated argument between a ministry wizard and a very, very old wizard in a long, flowery nightgown. That, for us, is pure comedy. The ministry wizard is holding out trousers and begging this old dude named Archie to put them on. I bought this in a muggle shop. Love this guy. Said the old wizard stubbornly. Muggles wear them. Muggle women wear them, Archie. Not the men. They wear these, said the ministry wizard. And he's holding out the pants. Open your mind. I'm not putting them on, said old Archie in indignation. I like a healthy breeze around my privates. Thanks. <laughs> when you're older, everything stretches out. Things just kind of lumpy and... You gotta let that stuff breathe in there. I really admire Archie. He let, knows what's best for him. He's gotta let those nuts breathe. Hermione, overcome with giggles at this sight, they see Oliver Wood and Ernie and Cho Chang who causes Harry to slop water down his front. They see other teens who don't go to Hogwarts. Harry, quote, didn't voice the amazement he felt at hearing about other wizarding schools. He supposed, now that he saw representatives of so many nationalities in the campsite, that he had been stupid never to realize that Hogwarts couldn't be the only one. He glances at Hermione, who looked utterly unsurprised by the information. <laughs> Harry <laughs> is not the most curious guy around sometimes. <laughs> when they get back to the tents, they learn that there's still no fire because Mr. Weasley is out <laughs> here just like lighting every match in the meadow. Oh, my God. Everywhere is glee, happiness, delight. I love that visual of him just striking <laughs> match after match. Like, woo, oops, woo. Oops. So good. Ministry officials keep stopping by to say hi to Arthur, who introduces them to Harry and Hermione. His own kids obviously know most of these people already. They and we get to meet Ludo, literal bagman bagman, who is wearing stretched tight quidditch robes and, you know, is described as having this boyish face. The conversation between Arthur and Ludo illustrates this growing interplay between light and dark. He boasts about the weather. And the smooth arrangement saying, quote, not much for me to do, just as <laughs> at this very moment, a group of, quote, haggard looking officials are running past to put out a magical fire that's sending violet sparks 20 right. feet into the air. We know how hard other people are working and how many things actually are constantly on the verge of going wrong. But we can tell right away Ludo's not seeing any right. of that. They chat amiably and quite amusingly about the cup and gambling. And we learn that Agatha Timms oh, yeah. has put half her shares in her eel farm on a week-long match. We miss you, Megalian. Is she not at the cup? Too tense to f watch. She's probably like— Taking it in from afar? Yeah, she can't. In private? She can't actually be there. She'd just freak out. Fred and George offer their entire life savings, 37 galleons, 15 sickles, 3 knuts, on Ireland to win with— And this is a truly striking parlay— Crumb catching the snitch. Ludo is delighted to hear about this. These rubes. I'll take that. And he offers them great odds, much to Arthur's consternation. Talk then turns to the darkness. Missing ministry worker Bertha Jorkins, who is in Ludo's department, not that he gives a fuck. Right. We know from chapter one that Voldemort has murdered Bertha. Yes. But the best Ludo can do is just be like, ah, well, who knows? But she'll turn up. He says, poor old Bertha, memory like a leaky cauldron and no sense of direction. Lost. You take my word for it. She'll wander back into the office sometime in October, thinking it's still July. Again, I want to work for Ludo Bagman. Do you, though? <laughs> yeah, because it's like. 
Day to day may be great, but then when you turn up dead, he doesn't notice. Well, I'll just try not to turn up dead and I will just stay home and collect my checks. (laughs) Thank you very much. We'll learn later that her reputation for poor memory is the result of the crouch memory charm that addled her mind. But regardless, Ludo is her boss and he seems, not even seems, he is unconcerned that she's been gone for more than a month. (laughs) No wonder the ministry couldn't check the rise of Voldemort. They can't even keep track of their employees. The ministry couldn't freaking check Ludo Bagman finding his pants. I mean, it's it's unbelievable how bad the ministry is at almost everything. (laughs) Then we meet another ministry official, Barty Crouch, who, quote, could not have made more of a contrast with Ludo Bagman. Crouch is stiff. He's straight-laced. He took the muggled dress code so seriously that Harry thinks he could pass for a bank manager. The bulk of the Crouch exchanges in this book will range somewhere from intense to downright alarming, but this one actually opens with some comedy. Mr. Crouch, said Percy breathlessly, sunk into a kind of half-bow that made him look like a hunchback. Would you like a cup of tea? Oh, said Mr. Crouch, looking over at Percy in mild surprise. Yes. Thank you, Weatherby. Tough. (laughs) Fred and George choked into their own cups. Percy, very pink around the ears, busied himself with the kettle. My God. Then Crouch raises flying carpets to Arthur, mentions his family's old one. Quote, he spoke as though he wanted to leave nobody in any doubt that all his ancestors had abided strictly by the law. This is such an amazing instant establishment of his personality, showing us right away how rigid he is and allowing us to accept perfectly when we learn it later in the book, this is the kind of man who would send his own son to prison. And then flipping that on us so fantastically with the shock of realizing that he's actually been breaking the law this whole time. Stannis Crouch Sr. (laughs) (laughs) Sports. Yeah. There's a nice moment of contrast when Ludo starts hinting about the next event and Barty goes into full, we agreed not to say. This is insane. (laughs) I will mention this in the next episode, but like apologies to Hagrid because nobody can keep a secret around here. (laughs) It's a great point. Their dynamic appears to be one of light and dark. Ludo, cheerful, crouch, uptight. But as with so much else in this story, we will learn in time how much more complex the truth really is. Is. Match time is approaching, and check out this evocative writing from the Lord J.K. So good. A sense of excitement rose like a palpable cloud over the campsite as the afternoon wore on. By dusk, the still summer air itself seemed to be quivering with anticipation, and as darkness spread like a curtain over the thousands of waiting wizards, the last vestiges of pretense disappeared. The ministry seemed to have bowed to the inevitable and stopped fighting the signs of blatant magic now breaking out everywhere. This reminds me of like the 4th of July when it's ostensibly mm-hmm. illegal to have fireworks and basically everybody's just like, yeah, fuck it. As soon as it's like 8 p.m., it's like, what are you going to do? I'm just firing up fireworks. It's literally nothing you can do. This is just wonderful writing and we can feel how the magic and joy are literally uncontainable. Yeah. As is the merch, which is everywhere. Rosettes that shout player names, hats adorned with shamrocks, Bulgarian scarves with roaring lions, Vila porn. No, it's just... <laughs> It's got to exist, though, right? Flags that play the national anthems, tiny firebolts that really fly, player figurines that stroll across your palm and preen after Harry purchases three pairs of omnioculars. A gong sounds and lanterns spring to life, lighting the way to the stadium. It is time. Chapter 8, the Quidditch World Cup. As the group makes its way to the stadium, 
quote, the atmosphere of feverish excitement was highly infectious. Harry couldn't stop grinning. This is spectacle and joy. This is the spirit of community. Harry spies the stadium and thinks that 10 cathedrals could fit into it. Arthur says it seats 100,000. Which really makes you contemplate how many witches and wizards are in the world at a given moment in time. Muggle-repelling charms are on every inch of the place. Our gang has great seats thanks to Ludo Bad-at-his-job Bagman. The box is empty, quote, except for a tiny creature sitting in the second from last seat at the end of the row behind them. Harry is like, oh, Dobby, what's up? My God. Oh, shit. (laughs) Whoops. It is our new friend Winky, who hates heights and keeps hiding her face in fright. This quickly turns this joyous scene intensely serious when she tells Harry that, hey, guys, freedom is just another word for pay me. He is wanting pay for his work, sir, she says of the Dobster. Well, fucking right. Pay my guy. Attaboy, Dobby. Winky's not here for this, though. House elves does what they is told. I is not liking heights at all, Harry Potter. She glanced toward the edge of the box and gulped. But my master sends me to the top box and I come, sir. Of course, we'll learn the truth in the book's climax. She's not saving the seat for Barty Sr. She's there with Barty Jr. under his invisibility cloak in the seat right next to her. At least we have Percy to lighten the mood by serving as an eternal human punchline. Quote, when Cornelius Fudge, the minister of magic himself, arrived, Percy bowed so low that his glasses fell off and shattered. The opening chapters of this book are such a tough look for Percy. Fudge, we're told, greets Harry in, quote, fatherly fashion. Harry is still Fudge's favorite boy at this moment, but it won't last long. long. By book's end, the darkness that stems from doubt and cowardice will totally cloud this light, completely obscuring it, with Fudge refusing to believe Harry and aligning himself firmly against Harry and Dumbledore. Corn Fudge has guests. (laughs) Noted Death Eaters, (laughs) Lucius and Narcissa, and their son Draco. Imagine getting prime tickets to the World Cup final and then having to share a box with these fucks. Very tough look here. But these circumstances grant us our first look at Narcissa Malfoy, Draco's mommy. Lucius's wife and Bellatrix Lestrange's sister. She's described thusly. She would have been nice looking if she hadn't been wearing a look that suggested there was a nasty smell under her nose. Fudge, naturally, is not paying attention to any of this. So he misses Lucius's latest fucking insult aimed at the Weasley house. What did you have to sell to get seats in the top box? Surely your house wouldn't have fetched this much. Fuck this guy. Really tough. Lucius naturally got in by making a generous donation to St. Mungo's, a small but useful reminder that this actual Death Eater remains in the good graces of the ministry and those in power through charm and money and manipulation. Later that night, he'll be leading a session of muggle torture. Great. Great stuff. Right now, he's rubbing elbows with the ministry itself. It is truly sickening to reflect on these power dynamics and how those with means can so often find a way to whisper into the ears of those in power. Is it that hard to be like, God, I wonder who the Death Eaters could have been? Should we check against a a list of known Death Eaters and ask them? Ow, let's just move on. Was anyone's son casually leaning against a tree, (laughs) observing the scene with a grin on his face? Cackling in delight and threatening various other young people about? Fully exploring the ramifications of rampant bribery will have to wait because it's match time. Ludo? magically magnifies his voice with a sonorous spell. What wouldn't we give to have a Ludo Luna booth here, by the way? Oh, man. And we're introduced to the team's mascots. And this is 
This is magic. Yeah. First, Bulgaria's mascots. The Vila. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, the Vila were women. The most beautiful women Harry had ever seen. Except they weren't. They couldn't be human. Wow. (laughs) Harry's mind goes blank as he watches them dance. Quote, all that mattered in the world was that he kept watching the Vila. Because if they stopped dancing, terrible things would happen. (laughs) (laughs) Hermione snaps Harry from his trance and he realizes that he has one leg over the wall of the top box. That's not the wall of the top box, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Ron is about to dive off. Yeah. Harry thinks that he would, of course, be supporting Bulgaria. Quote, he wondered vaguely why he had a large green shamrock pinned to his chest. Ron is shredding his eye. <laughs> I love that. Ear. I love that <laughs> visual. <laughs> Hermione's tutting and disapproval. Thank the gods for JKR, who one chapter before she yes. unleashes the terror of the dark mark, still finds time to mock the men who can only think with their wands. And then it's Ireland's turn. A green and gold comet enters and then splits into different shapes and begins to rain down gold coins. Harry realizes that the shapes are made up of myriad tiny Cute. leprechauns. Aww. And now, team intros. Crumb sends the whole place into a tizzy. The match begins and, quote, it was Quidditch as Harry had never seen it played before. It's like the NBA versus college. He observes that, quote, the speed of the players was incredible. Watching in slow-mo on his omnioculars costs him Real-time scoring. It happened that fast. What a moment for Harry, who loves Quidditch, who feels free in the air in a way that he otherwise never does, who's always felt that flying was the only thing that truly came naturally to him to see these greats and find inspiration anew. He's particularly inspired by the ministrations of Crumb, who flies better than anyone Harry has ever seen. He's like Jordan combined with Iverson out there. More on Crumb's skills (laughs) later in the episode. We get an absolutely iconic moment when, during a penalty, the Vila put their spell on the ref. You got to put the Vila away (laughs) during play. The claim chairwizard of the International Association of Quidditch, Hassan Mustafa, he, quote, had landed right in front of the dancing Vila and was acting very oddly indeed. (laughs) He was flexing his muscles and smoothing his mustache excitedly. Jesus Christ. A Medi-Wizard has to rush out and kick him in the shins (laughs) to break his trance. How is this allowed? It's actually wild. Get them off the pitch. Well, Get our them dude, out of- he does exactly that. Thank you. Mustafa bans them from the pitch and in so doing, really stokes the already bubbling tension on both sides. The leprechauns <laughs> for me, middle finger in midair. Just an elite moment from them. And the Vilas are not, they're not going to go peacefully. Yeah. Quote, their faces were elongating into sharp Cruel-beaked bird heads and long, scaly wings were bursting from their shoulders. Mmm, hot. Quote, and that, boys, yelled Mr. Weasley over the tumult of the crowd below, is why you should never go for looks alone. Damn. (laughs) Now, this whole swath of detail is delightful to behold because it's simultaneously completely innovative and unique to what is transpiring on the page here and also totally recognizable. You know, what muggle... Hasn't earned a middle finger from a rival fan at a sporting event or felt their own sharp beak emerge amid a fierce bit of trash talk. This is JKR's unrivaled ability again to make the magical world at once completely specific and 
just a degree removed from our own world. And it's a constant source of light, her ability to do this, because it makes it so much easier for all of us, even amid our delight at whatever new creation is on display in a given passage, to imagine ourselves in Harry's shoes. The match ends when Crumb, despite Bulgaria being down 160 points, catches the snitch. It is a moment that will inspire commentary and debate to this day. Yes. The chapter ends with Bagman calling the result a really unexpected twist, just as Fred and George, who predicted it exactly. And by the way, someone should look into this. So what's your theory? Arrive in front of him, hands outstretched. I don't know. I think they have a deal with Crumb or something. Whoa! I mean, wouldn't you? So you're you're saying Crumb threw the match and they had intel. I think you got to check the Hong Kong betting lines to see who bet this particular parlay in the minutes before the match. So Isaac thinks the Weasleys have an illicit time turner. No, I think it's very, it's, (laughs) why, why do it? It's not that hard. All you have to do is someone get in Crumb's ear and be like, hey man, catch the snitch. We'll split the winnings with you. You know who said they'd split the winnings? Megalian. Megalian, when she told them to place this bet. I'm telling you. (laughs) To do it in the final is, if you really want to get away with something like this, you do it in the group stages. The truly suspicious part is that it's every cent they have. Every cent they have. It's, come on, guys. Which means you're sure. Yeah. It's, (laughs) never trust those guys. (laughs) Chapter nine. The iconic. Yes. The dark mark. Our crew shares a cup of cocoa and a chat before bed, reliving the events of the match, riding high after the privilege of witnessing such a spectacular sporting event in person. When it's time for bed, Harry lies awake, thinking of Chrome's moves, fantasizing about one day hearing his own name called in a grand stadium like this. But those golden visions and the sleep that Harry doesn't even recall falling into are very unceremoniously interrupted when Mr. Weasley calls everyone awake. Quote, dimly, he, meaning Harry, could tell that something was wrong. The noises in the campsite had changed. The singing had stopped. He could hear screams and the sounds of people running. The collective joy that defined the day has turned into a nightmare. Mr. Weasley says there's not even time to dress. Grab a jacket and go. Harry and co. run out of the tent and see people fleeing into the woods and something moving toward them, quote, emitting odd flashes of light and noises like gunfire. This is actually one of my favorite chapters in the whole series, just in terms of... The way the mood changes so swiftly and that the way Rowling depicts this feeling of danger everywhere and chaos and what is happening, crowds running, people running in every direction. It's a crowd of masked wizards magically levitating and torturing four figures from the book. It was as though the masked wizards on the ground were puppeteers. Harry observes that, quote, two of the figures were very small. These people are torturing kids. And that one line erases any shred of doubt. These people, the Death Eaters, are monsters. Yes. The marchers are blasting tents, which catch fire. Harry recognizes Mr. Roberts as one of the floating people and realizes that the other people must be his wife and children. The mass figures have gone after the muggles. There's one particularly disturbing description of the way one of the Death Eaters flips Mrs. Roberts upside down so that her dress falls around her head and she's trying to pick it back up. It's truly disturbing shit. Arthur tells the kids to head for the woods, stick together. Meanwhile, he, Bill, and Charlie and Percy are going to go help the ministry fight whatever is happening. The lanterns that lit the path to the match are extinguished. People are crashing through the trees in the dark. Children are crying. This would be terrifying under any circumstances, but the contrast this scene strikes to the euphoria that we just witnessed is truly jarring and an effectively unsettling reminder that misery may always be waiting around the next corner. Light and dark, dark and light. Harry, Ron, and Hermione spy Draco 
standing against a tree, quote, looking utterly relaxed. Mmm, suspicious. He makes a cruel crack about hurrying along so that Hermione isn't spotted. And Harry's like, Hermione's a witch. She's a magical being. Mm -hmm. And Draco's reply is pure venom. Quote, if you think they can't spot a mudblood, stay where you are. And one of the worst things about this is that he's right. The Death Eaters aren't just after muggles. We'll see this over the ensuing books. They're after anyone they don't think fits their particular vision of the world. Here's where our friends make a mistake. They should have stomped Draco into a puddle right here. You're in the dark. Chaos everywhere. No one's going to know. Kick this kid's fucking ass right now. Too bad they haven't learned the unforgivable curses yet. (laughs) I know. Just fucking hit this guy in the head with a rock. Can't wait for Cram's classic. Is it okay to imply we want to murder a child? Yes, it's okay. This guy's over here like, ha, 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 look, torture. It's great. (laughs) Harry asks where Draco's parents are. Quote, out there wearing masks, are they? And Malfoy replies, well, if they were, I wouldn't be likely to tell you, would I, That's not a no! Not a no! That's not a denial! (laughs) Later, in the graveyard scene in the climax of this book, we will get confirmation that this muggle torture was, in fact, Lucius's doing. Hashtag, why are they not in jail? (laughs) Our trio, now separated from the twins and Ginny after this interlude with Draco, they move onward. And they pass a collection of students speaking French, asking about... Someone named Madame Maxime. (laughs) Hermione gives us a nice bit of Bobaton foreshadowing for the coming chapters. And then Harry reaches into his pocket for his wand and finds that it is missing. Good job, my guy. Uh Uh-oh. Quote, he usually kept his wand with him at all times in the wizarding world. And finding himself without it in the midst of a scene like this made him feel very vulnerable. Well, yeah. Think about this for a minute. A wand isn't just a weapon or a shield. It's the very vessel that allows wizards to be wizards, Harry to be Harry, to do magic. Without it, what, who is he? We will see him confront these very questions extremely painfully and hallows after his wand snaps, but we get a taste of it here in a very high-stress moment. As Harry's ruminating on where the fuck his wand might be, a sound makes them all jump, and they spot Winky fighting her way against invisible bonds out of the bushes, trying to get away from the book. She was moving in a most peculiar fashion, apparently with great difficulty. It was as though someone invisible were trying to hold her back. Just amazing foreshadowing work from Rolling Hair. She's telling us, actually, what happened? Barty, invisible, is tethered to Winky under his cloak, but we can't see it. It's a microcosm of Goblet's brilliance, the plotting, the pacing, breadcrumb trails leading us to eventual clarity, seeding all these scenes with various... Things that will eventually pay off. Ron asks why Winky can't run properly. Harry suspects that she didn't ask permission, which we know is a thing that happens to elves when they try to fight against the wishes of their master. We'll learn in time that it's also Barty Jr. fighting her after she binds him to her and flees the tent. Hermione launches into an early speech on elf rights, laying the groundwork for one of the book's principal non-tournament, non-volty subplots. Hermione says, it's slavery, that's what it is. Why doesn't anyone do something about it? Ron's reply is terrible. Well, the elves are happy, aren't they? They like it. Essentially, he's saying he goes on, but she cuts him down. It's people like you, Ron, Hermione began hotly, who prop up rotten and unjust systems just because they're too lazy to... And there, Ron cuts her off. Spew's fully realized vision is on hold for now, though, because... Need a better acronym. That's part of the problem. It's a branding issue. It's not great. Spew... 
It's not that good. You're not like, I need to be a part of SPEW when you hear yeah. it. I'm in SPEW. <laughs> it's S-P-E-W. Yeah. They must keep moving. Even amid the horror of the scene, we get many bursts of restorative light. It's part of the brilliance of this chapter. Our trio sees a group of wizards in the woods boasting to three Vila. One of the wizards, Stan! Your boy Stan! Very not yet <laughs> imperioed into death eaterdom. Put him in jail anyway. <laughs> Instead, here, boasting that he's about to become the youngest ever minister of magic, and Ron pipes up to join the Bragfest, shouting that he's invented a broom that can reach Jupiter. Again, this is peak JKR, displaying this unmatched ability to balance the dark and the light in her story, even in this most intensive scenes. This is a hallmark that is on particularly consistent and noteworthy display throughout Goblet. As the stakes rise and the darkness spreads— it's important, imperative even, to still give the readers and the story's inhabitants alike reason to laugh and hope. Hermione notes how astonishing it is that these masked figures would choose to do this with so many government officials around, essentially the entire ministry there. And it's a great point. Over the course of the series, people either not fearing or not trusting the ministry will be a heavy theme. And we soon get our firsthand glimpse of why. Our heroes hear someone staggering into the clearing but can't see a thing from the book. And then, without warning, the silence was rent by a voice unlike any they had heard in the wood. And it uttered not a panic shout but what sounded like a spell. Mosbard! Something vast and green enters the sky. Harry realizes it's a Celtics logo. How awful. <laughs> no, sorry. It's a skull made of emerald stars with a serpent protruding from its mouth. As they watched, it rose higher and higher, blazing in a haze of greenish smoke, etched against the black sky like a new constellation. Jason Tatum is only 19 years old! Oh, no, the voice says. Awful. There's something about that phrasing that's so stark and petrifying. Constellations are permanent, ever-present, part of the fabric of our sky and our lives. Is this... Now, too, and then all around them, the air erupts. Harry doesn't know what caused it, but deduces that it must be the shape in the sky. And Hermione demands that they get out of there. She's terrified. Of course she knows what it is. Right. It's the dark mark, Harry. Hermione moaned, pulling him as hard as she could. You know who, sign? Before they get more than a few steps, however, they hear pop, 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 pop. And 20 wizards apparate into the clearing, all with their wands pointed at our pals. Harry shouts to duck, and not a moment too soon, because all 20 shout, stupefy, and stunners bounce all around. Boom, 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 boom. Arthur, voice shaking, recognizes his son, calls off the attack. He just shot at his son also. <laughs> <laughs> Tough look for Arthur. Also, two things. Arthur shot at his son. Tough look for Arthur. Tough look for the ministry guys who 20 of them miss. Three children. <laughs> yes. <laughs> tough stuff all around. Better than ultimately hitting the chosen one, but yes, tough. It's very like, tough. can we get an aura who can hit somebody? They're, they have worse aim than the stormtroopers. <laughs> very, very tough. Crouch yells, which of you did it? Which of you conjured the dark mark? And they naturally deny that they did it because they did not. Do not lie. Crouch shouts, noting that they're at the scene of the crime. Great sleuthing, my guy. <laughs> Great guy. Cool wow. guy. <laughs> How could you tell? From the book, his eyes were popping. He looked slightly mad. A ministry witch among the assembled notes that these are just children. Arthur asks where the spell came from, and Hermione says, there was someone behind the trees. They shouted words in incantation. No one but Crouch thinks it's remotely likely that Harry, Ron, and Hermione did this. But still, think how this must feel, even for a moment, to be accused of this crime by members of your own government and see Crouch, a man of 
standing and renown yes. and decorum descending into madness before their very eyes. Who could trust that? No one. No. Amos Diggory, Cedric's dad, notes that if the voice came from where Hermione says, there's a good chance their stunning spells actually got the culprit. He investigates and he returns with Winky. Unconscious. What? Crouch, upon seeing his elf, says, this cannot be, he said jerkily. No. He is thinking, of course, of his son, whom Winky was monitoring, and whom he realizes must have broken free of his control. He's starting to piece together what's happening. We don't know it at the time, but clearly that's what's transpiring. He goes back to look for another body. The masses think, oh, he's going to try to find something that gets his elf off the hook. But we'll learn in time, really, that he's checking for his son under his invisibility cloak. When he returns, quote, his face was still ghostly white and his hands and his toothbrush mustache were both twitching. He risked everything to bring his son to the Quidditch World Cup. And though we don't know it here, that miscalculation will prove almost impossibly costly. Amos revives Winky, whom he found wildly holding a wand, just crazy stuff, and begins to cruelly interrogate her, calling her simply Elf, as though she's not a being with a name or feelings Terrible. or any kind of worth. It is sickening. And when Amos raises the wand in questioning into the air, Harry realizes, oh my God, that's my wand. Amos asks Harry, <laughs> are you confessing? But then Harry <laughs> explains that the wand has gone missing. Winky admits to picking up the wand, haha, but no more. Hermione finds her courage and says the voice they heard shouting incantation was not Winky's. Ron and Harry back her up, but to no avail as Amos says, we'll soon see. It's a simple way of discovering the last spell a wand performed. Elf, did you know that? And he roars, prior incantado, and the echo of the mark emerges. Things get even more awkward and tense when Crouch asks Amos if he's implying that Crouch teaches his servants to conjure the mark. I'd be like, yes, I am implying that because here is your elf right. with a wand that conjured the mark. Right. So, like, I don't know. One and one equals two. <laughs> From the book, you have now come very close to accusing the two people in this clearing who are least likely to conjure that mark, barked Mr. Crouch, whose son conjured the mark. From the book again, Harry Potter and myself, adding, I trust you remember the many proofs I have given over a long career that I despise and detest the dark arts and those who practice them. We don't know yet what this means and won't until Sirius tells us, but he's referring to sending his own son to Azkaban, which, I mean, keeping him there would have been even better, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there. <laughs> Crouch's reputation hinges on this decision, and he wears it like a badge, a testament to his fortitude and unwavering Ethics. He really seems to believe it, and maybe he does, but how can he reconcile that with what we'll eventually learn about him? Smuggling Jr. out? Thank God's for Arthur, who injects some kind of kindness into the proceedings yes. after he shot at his son, tenderly asking, <laughs> <laughs> a great question. Where'd you find the wand? Why wasn't that the first question? It's like a bunch of Inspector Clouseau's over here just like groping around in the dark. Arthur says... It was clever to use another's wand, knowing one's own could betray the culprit. Amos asks if Winky saw anyone, and she gulps in terror. We know she has to lie, of course, when she says no. Crouch asks Amos to let him, let me deal with, uh, let me, uh, hold on. Let me deal with Winky. Uh, no need to bring her in for questioning. Let me, uh, uh. And again, what is the ministry doing here? Is it, can you really let a dude investigate his own elf? 
It's just, <laughs> what is happening here at the ministry? Let me, I'll, I'll, I'll look into this. When Crouch looks at Winky, it's described as, there was no pity in his gaze. This tells us so much about this guy. To Winky, he says, this means clothes. Hermione displaying remarkable courage in this moment yeah. to challenge ministry officials of high standing. Crouch replies, I have no use for a servant who forgets what is due to her master and to her master's reputation. Ugh. What a disgrace he is. Ugh. Notably, back in the tent, Percy reveals more of his true, at least for now, colors by <laughs> siding with Crouch. The get Percy, awful look for get, Percy. Get Percy out of here. Awful look for Percy. Just unbelievable. Ron then, helpfully, acts as the reader's avatar, begging someone to explain what that skull thing was. He says, it wasn't hurting anyone. Why is it such a big deal? <laughs> okay, so on the one hand, yes, helpful for the reader. On the other hand, think about this. Ron Weasley is a pure-blood wizard who has grown up in the magical yes. world. He is the son of a Ministry of Magic yes. official. And he doesn't know what Voldemort's sign is. How is such a thing even possible? How can we, Jason raises this point often, how can we learn from our own history if we don't even know what it is? Hermione recognized the sign because she had read about it in a book. But Ron, who grew up afraid to even say Voldemort's name, has never seen of it or heard of it. That's almost more unsettling than what transpired yes. in the woods because it speaks to the sin of silence and to how our fear can sometimes be the biggest danger of all. Mr. Weasley starts to explain. And this is some of the most chilling writing yes. in the book. It hasn't been seen for 13 years. Of course people panicked. It was almost like seeing you-know-who back again. I don't get it, said Ron, frowning. I mean, it's still only a shape in the sky. And then Arthur cuts right through that assessment and explains everything that the shape represents. He mm -hmm. says, Ron, you know who and his followers sent the dark mark into the air whenever they killed? The terror it inspired. You have no idea. You're too young. Just picture coming home and finding the dark mark hovering over your house and knowing what you're about to find inside. Mr. Weasley winced. Everyone's worst fear. The very worst. The power of symbols is not specific to the Harry Potter story. There are, devastatingly, too many real-world corollaries to even list. Yes. But again, here, J.K. Rowling crafts something that is at once specific to her story and her villain and totally ubiquitous. So many people reading this story can relate to the terror of seeing something that is meant to tell them, you're less than, you're unworthy, you deserve to be cut down. That's not fictional darkness. That is an ugly shroud that is draped over real-world history and that still stretches into the present day. Bill reveals that whoever conjured the mark scared away the riding Death Eaters who disapparated before the ministry could unmask him. This is slightly counterintuitive. The Roberts family, he says, is having its memory modified right now. Harry asks, who are the Death Eaters? And again, we get the download on Voldemort's reign. It's what you know whose supporters called themselves, said Bill. I think we saw what's left of them tonight, the ones who managed to keep themselves out of Azkaban anyway. And Arthur explains that half the Muggle killings back in that terrible time, done just for fun, for sport. And think about what could happen to Mr. Roberts, the Dursleys, every muggle that we've come to know through the course of this story. From the book again, I suppose they had a few drinks tonight and couldn't resist reminding us all that lots of them are still at large. Ron uh -huh. says, hey, wouldn't they have been pleased to see their master's sign? And here that counterintuitiveness is, right. is explained. Bill explains that. Bill, by the way, just instantly indispensable. Yeah, Bill is like the guy who knows shit. <laughs> Bill is amazing. So Bill explains this. 
Many of Voldemort's followers escaped Azkaban, mm-hmm. right, by snitching out their cohorts from the book. I bet they'd be even more frightened than the rest of us to see him come back. We'll learn later that this is exactly right and that Barty Jr. sent the mark into the sky because he was dismayed that those who had escaped prison but never sought to find Voldemort were just out there torturing muggles for sport and not looking for their master. One thing Arthur knows for sure, only Death Eaters know how to conjure the mark. With all this information in his head, Harry can't sleep. He's worried. Three days ago, his scar burned, and now for the first time in 13 years, Voldemort's sign is in the sky. What do these things mean, he asks himself. It's hard to believe that mere hours ago, he was thinking about the Ronsky defensive feint. Loves Quidditch, though. He does. Chapter 10, Mayhem at the Ministry. On the way out of the campsite, Harry and co. passed Mr. Roberts. He had a, quote, strange, dazed look about him, and he waved them off with a vague, Merry Christmas. It is notably summer. Mr. Weasley assures them that Mr. Roberts will be all right, that it's not uncommon to be disoriented after a memory charm as substantial as the one that he would have needed to forget the horror of the prior night. But again, let's consider that the Ministry Wizards were oblivioning Mr. Roberts before that as a matter of course for their own protection. And then something truly awful happened and they needed a stronger brew. In both cases, the intention was to some extent Mm well-intentioned, congenial, protect the magical world from detection as they're obligated to do, and then rid this man and his family of the awful memory of their torture. But is that ever someone else's choice to make? Should it ever Mm -hmm. be? Is this really so dissimilar from mind control, which is an unforgivable offense? They cut the portkey line and head on home, where Mrs. Weasley is absolutely beside herself with worry. In the prior chapter, Arthur said, listen, It's very late, and if your mother hears what's happened, she'll be worried sick. We'll get a few more hours sleep and then try to get an early portkey out of here. Wild stuff from Arthur Weasley, who cannot even call home to be like, here's what happened and we're fine. Just let Milf stew in her own fear back at the burrow. Terrible look from Arthur here. (laughs) It's actually insane. It's terrible. I think working at the ministry just rots everyone's brain. Also, you have to assume that he knows her clock probably shows all of them mortal yeah, peril. Yeah, mortal peril. So they're just going to be sitting there terrified. Dad, should we call him now? Call her in the morning. It's, On I'm, the felly tone? I'm tired. <laughs> we quickly discover how word traveled so fast. And of course, there shouldn't have been any doubt that it would, given what transpired and where at an international gathering of wizards, the Daily Prophet carries the headline, Scenes of terror at the Quidditch World Cup. Maybe this family reunion didn't need to be shrouded in such mystery, but at least it brings us joy and light. They arrive back home from the book. You're alive. Oh, boys. Molly says, shocking everyone by grabbing the twins first. Love this. I shouted at you before you left. Mrs. Weasley said, starting to sob. It's all I've been thinking about. What if you know who had got you? And the last thing I ever said to you was that you didn't get enough owls. <laughs> oh, Fred Jordan. This is a beautiful, touching moment and also a sensation that we can all relate to, that don't go to bed or leave the house angry worry that gnaws at you all day. What if you never got to say sorry? What if you end things on a sour note? How would that eat away with you for the rest of your life? Harry, meanwhile, is really starting to worry that he hasn't heard back from Sirius yet, and he needs to talk to him more than ever after what just happened. He leads Hermione and Ron away from the crowd and finally confides in them. And they react exactly as he anticipated that they would when he's thinking about it in Chapter 2. He stops short, though, of sharing one detail, that Wormtail and Voldemort are plotting his murder. 
but he does not accept Ron's attempt to hand wave the dream, going on to mention Trelawney's prediction and how it seems to be coming true. Then in an absolutely iconic happiness can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light moment, Mm -hmm. the boys segue immediately from this discussion to want to go play some Quidditch? Immediately. Three on three. Immediately. Hermione's like, Jesus. (laughs) We just saw an attack of the Death Eaters. I'm sure the ministry is hard at work identifying those involved. Not everyone is around for fun and games. Thank God. Mr. Weasley and Percy are rarely home that week in it as the ministry officials attempt to deal with the fallout. Molly says, giving us a window on how crazy a time this is. Your father hasn't had to go into the office on weekends since the days of you-know-who. A small but notable thing. He's not even properly back yet, and already these patterns are reemerging. Lives are altered. Work days are growing longer. Oh, my God, I have to go in on the weekends because the Death Eaters are back. Percy, in true dick fashion, says Arthur's working so hard because he feels compelled to make up for his mistake in commenting to the crowd upon leaving the woods without first getting his statement approved to the press. Oh, my God. Blast Percy. Can we just, it's like everybody, they only care about PR and nobody's trying to solve problems. (sighs) Thankfully, Molly has distractions from Percy. Problematically, not all of those distractions are pleasant. She got all of the school supplies for the kids when they were at the cup. And as Harry's unwrapping everything, Ron screeches, what is that supposed to be? And holds up what Harry thinks looks like a long maroon velvet dress with a moldy lace frill collar and cuffs. And when Ron tells his mother that she has mistakenly given him Jeannie's dress, she clarifies that those are indeed Ron's and that their school list called for dress robes this year. Yule ball, let's go! When Harry pulls out his robes, he's relieved to see that they look pretty much like normal robes, lace-free, bottle-length green instead Mm -hmm. of black. Lovely. Brings out his eyes, you know? And we then shift from laughing at Ron's discomfort to a truly awkward and unpleasant moment when Ron asks why he couldn't have robes like Harry's. And Mrs. Weasley says, because, well, I had to get your second hand and there wasn't a lot of choice, said Mrs. Weasley, flushing. Harry looked away. (laughs) As he always does. <laughs> he Here's the passage from the book. He would willingly have split all the money in his Gringotts vault with the Weasleys, but he knew they would never take it. Yeah, how would you know? Have you asked? I know. <laughs> this is me making a jack-off motion as Harry thinks this to himself. Oh. Mrs. Weasley then tells Harry to take a photo if Ron makes good on his threat to go naked instead. Quote, goodness knows I could do with a laugh. Then after she leaves the room, Pigwidgeon starts to choke on an owl treat. And as Ron gets up to unstick Pig's beak, he asks, and this is genuinely very sad, why is everything I own rubbish? Why don't you give it to Ron then? I mean, Fred and George willingly took money. Come on, Harry. Also, you know what? That passage, rereading it now, struck me as very much Rowling's editor being like, why hasn't why Harry hasn't Harry? <laughs> why doesn't Harry give money to the Weasleys? <laughs> Tough look continues for Harry Potter. <laughs> Hello there, Mal. Not on duty? Eh, it's all right for some. We've been here all night. Now that your boot has brought you in, please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about port keys. Ah, Porky's. 
One more mode of magical transport that makes certain body parts feel the way body parts just aren't supposed to feel. As we learn in Goblet, as our heroes are preparing to depart for the Quidditch World Cup, porkies are, quote, objects that are used to transport wizards from one spot to another at a prearranged time. You can do large groups at a time if you need to. Ah, how handy. Unlike horcruxes, which are rare or meaningful items, more often than not, porkies are mundane by design. Quote, well, they can be anything, Mr. Weasley tells the inquisitive Harry. Unobtrusive things, obviously, so muggles don't go picking them up and playing with them. Stuff they'll just think is litter. Ah, perhaps this explains the forest green trainer that's been sitting in the middle of my street for the last three weeks. As Arthur explains, using a port key requires just a touch. Quote, a finger will do, which I think is also a line from his sex tape. Once that finger's on the object and the port key departs, the effect is... Highly unpleasant. Quote, Harry felt as though a hook just behind his navel had been suddenly jerked irresistibly forward. His feet left the ground. He could feel Ron and Hermione on either side of him, their shoulders banging into his. They were all speeding forward in a howl of wind and swirling color. Why would anyone want to feel that way? Well, like some of the other magical methods of transportation that we've explored, porkies are useful for witches and wizards who, for some reason or other, can't travel by other means. They are particularly handy for those who want to travel by daylight, rendering obtrusive choices like broomsticks or thestrals or flying cars, looking at you, Ron Weasley, unwise. Or for those who are heading to or from a location without a fireplace and thus unconnected from the flu network. Portkey sickness is a risk, though as this method of travel can cause nausea and giddiness, among other maladies. As such, the elderly, pregnant, and ill are encouraged to avoid portkey use. Before the creation of the Hogwarts Express, students commonly got to the castle using portkeys, or at least commonly tried to. The logistics were a nightmare. Per Pottermore, quote, up to a third of students would fail to arrive every year. <laughs> a third! having missed their time slot or been unable to find the unobtrusive enchanted object that would transport them to their school. There was also the unfortunate fact that many children were and are portkey sick, mm -hmm. and the hospital wing was frequently full of bursting for the first few days of every year. That honestly just sounds like a great built-in excuse to not go to class right away. Ah, but I'm portkey sick. Students are not the only ones who sometimes struggle to locate the object that is their portkey. Though portkeys are specifically designed to avoid muggle interest, the fact that any inanimate object can be turned into a portkey means that there's ultimately always a risk that the object will fall into unsuspecting hands. Pottermore recounts the delightful tale of two muggle dog walkers who were accidentally transported to a Celestina Warbeck concert in 2003. Love her. Love her. Because their dog... <laughs> Their dogs ran off with a shoe that was really a portkey. Quote, leaving an anguished crowd of witches and wizards to look frantically for their portkey on a stretch of empty grass, hopefully seizing old crisp packets and cigarette ends. <laughs> this definitely sounds like something that would have happened to our girl, yes. Eloise Mintumble. Shouts to Mintumble. <laughs> when portkeys find their rightful users, though, they're handy, albeit unpleasant. As J.K.R. notes on Pottermore, quote, the suggestion of arranging port keys for the transportation of annoying relatives has saved many a wizarding family Christmas. Indeed. And also, according to J.K.R., the name port key comes from the French porter, meaning to carry, and the word key in the sense of a secret or a trick. 
There are two types of porkies. One that transports the user upon first touch, as we'll see with Harry and the maze at the end of Goblet, and ones that depart at a prearranged time, as we see here atop Stoat's Head Hill. The incantation for creating a portkey is Portis, and it appears that the spell can stack on top of itself when applied to the same object, effectively creating a multi-use portkey. Though this is never explicitly stated in the text, the prevailing belief is that even though Barty Crouch Jr. Jr. says he turned the Triwizard Cup into a portkey, it actually already was one, originally intended to take the first champion who touched it back outside the maze, thus confirming, beyond a doubt, which contestant had actually reached the goal first. Barty's incantation, then, would have added the graveyard as a destination, explaining how the cup sent Harry back to Hogwarts after he summoned it in the graveyard to escape. According to Wombat, in order for portkeys to be arranged between countries, the consent of both nations' ministries of magic may be required. We are told that in Britain specifically, portkeys are regulated by the ministry's portkey office, but their ability to regulate effectively, as with the ministry's ability to do anything effectively, is in doubt. Consider that no one noticed what Barty Jr. did to the cop. If it was already a portkey, then maybe his additional magic wouldn't be detectable. Still, it's worth wondering about. And then, in Order of the Phoenix, Lupin says, quote, it's more than our life's worth to set up an unauthorized portkey. When explaining that the advance guard will be taking Harry away from Privet Drive via broom. Later in Order, when Ron is asking Haggard why he needed to spend so much time getting to the Giants and didn't just take a portkey instead, Haggard looks at him with pity when he says, we're being watched. Yet we see multiple unauthorized porkies created in that book. Granted, they are created by Albus Dumbledore, who does not give a fuck. Shouts to you, Albus. Dumbledore turns a blackened kettle into a porky to send Harry, Ron, Ginny, and the twins to Grimmauld Place after Arthur's snake attack, smuggling the children out before Umbridge can stop them. Later in the book, after the battle at the Ministry, Dumbledore turns the golden wizard's head from the Fountain of Magical Brethren into a portkey to transport Harry back to Dumbledore's office. Fudge, witnessing this, loses it. You haven't got authorization for that portkey. You can't do things like that right in front of the Minister of Magic. You, you. But no one actually stops Dumbledore. And it's not clear whether they would have even detected this transgression if Fudge hadn't witnessed it in person. Porkies also play a key role in the Seven Potter's Ruse in Deathly Hallows and, hauntingly, in Dumbledore's backstory, as we learn in Rita Skeeter's filthy expose that Bathilda sent Grindelwald away from Godric's Hollow via Porky after Ariana Dumbledore's death. Could this potentially mean that we will see more navel-pulling transit in one of the upcoming Fantastic Beasts movies as we learn more about the Dumbledore-Grindelwald history? Here's hoping for the greater good. Greater good! Jason? Yes. I trust you remember the many proofs I have given over a long career that I despise and detest the dark podcasting detest. arts and those who practice them. I suppose you also remember the many proofs I have given that I love foreshadowing. Yes. <laughs> so let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Goblet Chapter 6 through 10, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first. So many. Number one, we joke about Harry not offering the Weasleys a share of his fortune because it's true. It's a true critique. But there's actually a ton of really poignant Ron Harry, I'm poor foreshadowing here in these chapters when Ron runs out of money and Harry offers to buy him omnioculars, but says, 
No, don't bother. His face going red. The book continues. He was always touchy about the fact that Harry, who had inherited a small fortune from his parents, had much more money than he did. Harry tells him it's an early Christmas present for about 10 years, mind. This is not necessary to say also, Harry. I agree. Never expect anything else for 10 <laughs> years after I got you these. <laughs> By the way, thank you for the food you sent me all summer long. Yeah, thank you that I never thanked you for. (laughs) You're not getting anything else for a decade now. Oh, my God. Fucking guy. (laughs) Then when the leprechauns rain down gold on the crowd, Ron stuffs a fistful of coins into Harry's hand and yells, There you go for the omnioculars. Now you've got to buy me a Christmas present, huh? This moment will cause extreme tension between the two later when a Niffler lesson in care of magical creatures teaches them that leprechaun gold vanishes. And Ron asks why Harry never told him. The payback disappeared. Harry asks, says he never noticed. Ron says, must be nice to have so much money that you don't notice if a pocket full of galleons goes missing. Oh my God. (laughs) Tough look for Harry continues. Really brutal. Number two, speaking of vanishing gold. Let's talk about our guy, Ludo, literal bagman, bagman for a hot second here, because there is a ton of foreshadowing in this span of chapters about his financial ruin. First Mm -hmm. of all, maybe we all should have been a little more suspicious that he was asking children to place bets and accepting their life savings. Yes. Now, granted, this is a world where teachers give students illicit brooms, but even so, notable. Then in the woods, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, quote, passed a group of goblins who were cackling over a sack of gold that they had undoubtedly won betting on the match and who seemed quite unperturbed by the trouble at the campsite. Shortly after this, Ludo appears in the woods and is described as looking, quote, very white and strained. And he has no idea that the riot is going on. In the moment, this is super weird. At the end of the book, we will learn that the goblins to whom Ludo was in crippling debt cornered him in the woods and took all of his gold. He paid them, however, in leprechaun gold, which vanished the next morning, leading the goblins to chase him to Hogwarts, thus leading him to bet on Harry winning the tournament, thus leading him to endlessly offer Harry help throughout the tournament. There's another notable moment here, too, when Mrs. Weasley notices that the twins are scribbling away in a huddle. We get this great exchange. Quote, you're not by any chance writing out a new order form, are you? Said Mrs. Weasley shrewdly. You wouldn't be thinking of restarting Weasley's Wizard Wheezes, would you, by any chance? Now, Mum, said Fred, looking up at her, a pain look on his face. If the Hogwarts Express crashed tomorrow and George and I died, how would you feel to know that the last thing we ever heard from you was an unfounded accusation? Hilarious, but... Notable because the truth of it is much darker. They are writing to Bagman after noticing that the winnings he paid them for their Ireland crumb bet vanished. Number three, let's talk journalism. Okay, our craft. Yes. As Arthur and company (laughs) exit the wood, a gaggle is waiting for answers, and they ask Arthur if it was him. Of course it's not him, said Mr. Weasley impatiently. We don't know who it was. Looks like they disapparated. Now, excuse me, please. I want to go to bed. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> yes, there's just been a devastating attack on an international gathering of wizards by the known supporters of Voldemort. Now, if you excuse me, I'm tuckered. <laughs> I need to get to bed. I've my... not gotten my eight hours. <laughs> See ya. I want to get to bed. This seems innocent enough, but we'll come back to bite him when it's presented as official ministry word <laughs> by... None other than Rita Skeeter. When Arthur scans the paper the next day, our girl Rita Skeeter enters the fray in a huge way. Who wrote this? Ah, of course. We can tell right away what kind of yellow journalism, sensationalism we're dealing with. 
from the book, rumors that several bodies were removed from the woods. <laughs> well, there certainly will be rumors now that she's printed that. I mean, like, I'm sorry, but do your job, everyone at the ministry. <laughs> then when Arthur comes home one day, he tells them Rita's found out about Bertha. And it's clear that this spells doom. The second she shows up to write about Harry, we should know what to expect. Rita is doing the Lord's work at this point in time. I'll just say that. Like, the ministry needs a little pressure to, to get it right. Standing for Rita is an I'm, incredible position. At this point in time, she's doing the, she's really helping out. I gotta say. Listen, you believe in your profession. I respect it. Because it's like, someone's gotta be holding the ministry's feet to the fire. Like, where did these Death Eaters come from? Are you looking for them? What is going on? I've gotta go to sleep, says ministry <laughs> official in charge of investigation. <laughs> I haven't worked on weekends in over a decade. (laughs) Number four. This is a sad one. When Harry observes the families at the campground, he thinks to himself that he's never seen witches and wizards this young. Mm -hmm. And he sees two little witches, quote, who are riding toy broomsticks that rose only high enough for the girls' toes to skim the dewy grass. After... Reading Deathly Hallows, it is impossible to take in that line and not think of the letter from Lily to Sirius that Harry finds at Grimald Place, complete with a description of how much Harry loves the toy broomstick that Sirius got him, and a photo of baby Harry zooming just a two feet off the ground. And speaking of Lily, there's some foreshadowing in the dark mark for Snape's worst memory. With the levitating figures, of course. And when Draco says to Hermione, do you want to be showing off your knickers in midair? Because if you do, hang around. They're moving this way and it would Mm. give us all a laugh. Have to recall Snape in a similar position. James, we will learn, humiliated Snape in fifth year by using his own spell, Snape's own spell, against him to hang him upside down in midair and reveal his underpants in front of Lily and other observers. Number five. The tents. Love this one. Harry notes that, quote, oddly enough, it was furnished in exactly the same sort of style as Mrs. Fig's house. There were crocheted covers on the mismatched chairs and a strong smell of cats. (laughs) Sounds like my home. (laughs) Yeah. Arthur reveals that he borrowed them from Perkins, his colleague. But still, one book before we realize that Mrs. Fig is actually connected to the magical world, Harry associates her with something in it. And we'll get another Fig mention at the end of this book. Speaking of the tent. It's the same one Harry, Ron, and Hermione use in Hallows when yes. they're on the run and hunting for Horcruxes as Hermione borrowed it from Arthur, who kept it from Perkins, who didn't want it back because his lumbago is so bad. <laughs> when Harry's first helping to assemble the tent here in Goblet, we get the line, Harry had never been camping in his life. Well, soon. <laughs> you will be camping a whole lot for like a year. This tent will be with you then, too. Number six, when Arthur is introducing Harry and company to various ministry officials, he at one point says, and that's Bode and Croker. They're unspeakables. Mm. They're what? Harry replies. From the Department of Mysteries, top secret, no idea what they get up to. This is an absolutely amazing bit of Order of the Phoenix foreshadowing here. It is a seeming throwaway exchange, but it primes us for our foray into the Department of Mysteries and for Bode's role in order when he is placed under the Imperious Curse, forced to try to retrieve the prophecy, mind-addled, and then murdered in St. Mungo's. And number seven, this section, this entire book is rich with foreshadowing nuggets. 
And we're going to go rapid fire here at the end to sneak a few more items in, as we often do. Letter A. <laughs> George complains that Percy keeps apparating inside the house just to prove that he can, but he and Fred will do the same once they use the magic in the house, as we'll see in the early chapters of Order of the Phoenix. Love the twins. B. We get a love goods mention here when Amos and Arthur are discussing other magical families in the neighborhood. Luna, girl. Love her. Get it, Get in here. Get into the story. Enter our lives already, please. Also, this geographical information will matter greatly in Hallows when Harry, Ron, and Hermione go to visit Luna's father and ask him about the sign of the Deathly Hallows. See, Mr. Weasley begs Harry to help him with the muggle money. This is This so one's a uh, uh, 10. Ah, yes. I see the little number on it now. So this is a five? A 20. Harry corrected him <laughs> in an undertone. I'm comfortably aware of Mr. Roberts trying to catch every word. Ah, yeah. So it is. I don't know these little bits of paper. Again, Arthur works in the Misuse of Muggle Artifacts Department, and not only appears to have never seen anything pertaining to muggles, disturbingly can't read numbers? <laughs> Shocking stuff. <laughs> oh my God. Shocking stuff from Arthur Weasley. An absolutely incompetent man who is truly a wonderful fellow, but just bad at his job and everything. God. D. We get our first mention of splinching here, which will happen to Ron three times. First, when he loses uh, just a trifle of eyebrow and fails his apparition test in Half-Blood Prince. Then, when he gets badly splinched during a hurried apparition escape in Hallows, one of the many factors that will sour his mood and lead to his falling out with Harry. And then again, when Ron returns in Hallows, we learn that he splinched himself when leaving Harry and Hermione that time, leaving a pair of fingernails behind. Ron, not good at apparating. E, we'll learn much more about Mundungus Fletcher's sketchiness in time, but we get a taste here as we learn that he, he's put in an insurance claim <laughs> for a tent with like a jacuzzi and various other amenities when the guy slept like under a blanket. Propped up on sticks. <laughs> Let my guy Mundungus live. Let him live a little bit. What a take. Also, like, Here's wild. where you landed in this podcast. You're pro Monungus and pro Rita, and uh, you're out on Arthur First Weasley. of all, Rita is right <laughs> in this case. Number two, it's amazing that what they're focusing on at this point with Death Eaters about. Death Eaters free in the countryside after an attack on muggles, and they're like, yeah, we got to nail Mundungus on... <laughs> this insurance claim. What the fuck are we doing? Percy's just looking for a W anywhere he can get it. Unbelievable. Should we go after the Death Eaters? No, we gotta get, we gotta (laughs) nail Mundungus. F. One of the advertisements at the cup is for Mrs. Scour's all-purpose magical mess remover, which we've heard of. Yes. That's what Filch was using in chamber to try to remove the paint on the wall. Shouts to Filch, now and always. Yes. G. It's interesting to note that Arthur is quite salty about Lucius getting into Fudge's favor in the top box with his St. Mungo's donation, but Arthur will wind up desperately needing St. Mungo's ministrations the next year when he's bitten by Nagini. Who is to milk Nagini? Who will? (laughs) H. Lastly and devastatingly, it is awful to think of how the future populates the conversation between Amos and Cedric when... Harry and co. meet them, waiting for the porky. Specifically, Amos talks to Cedric about what he'll tell his grandchildren. Grandchildren, of course, that Cedric will never get to have. Tough look. Sad. Mal, yeah. he looks really grumpy. Really grumpy? Who cares what he looks like? He's unbelievable. Every episode, 
We're going to honor the person or creature who compelled us the most. And today, again, very light on options for winners. We are dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup to... Vic the Dick Crumb. (laughs) Vic Crumb! I just pulled a muscle. He's got his face plastered all over the Bulgarian tents. My dude is a star. Oh, my God. From the book. The picture was, of course, moving, but all it did was blink and scowl. Love it. What stuff from my guy, Vic Crumb, always got his game face on. Hermione may think that he looks grumpy, which is— she likes that. (laughs) Very funny to think about. needs that determination. But Ron's worship-like whisper of Crumb's name and explanation of how young and amazingly talented he is tells us so much. This guy is a legend, a god. Fred and George's bet achieves something similar. We've heard gushing about Ireland's ability, but they still believe that Crumb will get the snitch. This is a lot like Jerry West winning the finals MVP (laughs) even though the Lakers lost. That's how good Crumb is. Ron buys a mini Crumb figurine, which is a big win for Crumb and a big L for Ron in the eventual war for Hermione's affection. <laughs> you bought Even an, though no one knows it yet. You bought an action figure of Hermione's boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Crumb's match intro sends Ron into a tizzy. That's him. That's him. His physical description is half tough stuff, half envy-inducing. Victor Crumb was thin, dark, and sallow skin with a large curved nose and thick black eyebrows. He looked like an overgrown bird of prey. Yum. It's hard to believe he was only 18. <sighs> He's legal, guys. <laughs> Crumb's Ronsky defensive feint causes Aidan Lynch, the seeker for Ireland, to crash into the ground and sends Harry into a mid-match study session on his omnioculars. Arthur calls Lynch a fool— Charlie notes that Crumb was after Lynch getting plowed. And it's clear, even though Crumb's team is getting crushed, that he is something special. Quote, Harry had never seen anyone fly like that. Crumb hardly looked as though he was using a broomstick at all. He moved so easily through the air. He looked unsupported and weightless. Savagely, but epically. Crumb uses the time that Lynch is being evaluated by the medics to look for the snitch. You got to be ruthless when you're a seeker. Unbelievable stuff. And then a bludger crushes Crumb's nose. Quote, there was blood everywhere. But our guy keeps playing. He also won over Harry even more in this moment. Even though Harry is going to be his competitor in the Triwizard Tournament soon, all Harry's thinking about right now is, I want someone to go check if Crumb is okay. Quote, even though he was supporting Ireland, Crumb was the most exciting player on the field. So after Crumb's injury, Lynch sees the snitch, but Crumb fights through the blood. Lynch crashes. Crumb grabs the snitch, and the twins, of course, were right. Ireland wins, but Crumb got the 150-point game ender. Ron is like, this guy's a fucking idiot. What happened? But Harry's on Crumb's side for yes. reasons. He knew they were never going to catch up. Is that true? They were never—10 uh, points. Can you get 10 points? Can you just score a couple times and then get it? But he can't—well, he can't risk— It's not like they were out of—like, you know he, what I mean? It just seems that Ireland—they can't stop Ireland from scoring. I think that's the deduction. Can they not do it? <laughs> <It's> not- <laughs> Lynch doesn't seem like much to fear on the secret sure. front. That's true. I get, yeah, it's like, come on. He knew they were never going to catch up, Harry shouted back over all the noise, also applauding loudly. The Irish chasers were too good. He wanted to end it on his terms. That's all. Crumb has an admirer, more than one, maybe. He was very brave, wasn't he, Hermione mm-hmm. said. He looks a terrible mess. Let me tend to Let him. Let me tend to him. <laughs> Crumb enters the top box. Looking like hell. He's got two black eyes blooming. 
but he's still holding the snitch. There's something cool about that. Quote, Harry noticed that he seemed much less coordinated on the ground. He was slightly duck-footed and distinctly round-shouldered. But when Crumb's name was announced, the whole stadium gave him a resounding, ear-splitting roar. This sort of recalls Michael Phelps. There's something Phelpsian about this. Like, a guy who is a god in his realm and then just kind of like an awkward, regular dude outside of it. But people worship him. And he made his fans proud. Ron is even playing with his Crumb figurine during the riot. Shouts to you, Victor Crumb. Vic the dick. Vic the dick. (laughs) Well, friends, there's a simple way of discovering the last episode a podcast performed. Did you know that? Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, trembled when we told them. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again tomorrow. We will be discussing chapters 11 through 15 of Goblet of Fire. Until then, remember, that, listeners, is why you should never go for looks alone. Mr. Weasley, Mr. Weasley, is it true the Death Eaters are back? Mr. Weasley, Mr. Weasley, I heard the Death Eaters were torturing muggles. Is that true? Uh, yeah, <laughs> they're out there. They're back. Woo. Uh, excuse me, I just had a like too hot dog. I'm tired, guys. They're back. What can I say? They're back. I'm gonna go home. Do me a favor. Don't print this until tomorrow. Wait for after I call my wife. I'm not gonna call her now. I'm tired, guys. <laughs> Man, it's been a long night. I almost shot my son. (laughs) I gotta go to bed.